I still grow so much as a person through every project. I learn something new about myself every time, or I learn something new about my environment or my relationship with the ocean or um, my relationship with my boat. Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. And our guest on the podcast today is the amazing Lisa Blair, who is an Australian adventurer. She's an author, keynote speaker, but she is most known for being a multi-world record-holding sailor. This remarkable woman loves nothing more than sailing solo across vast stretches of oceans, around nations, and the most famous of all was her 2017 effort to break the world record sailing solo around Antarctica. She was looking great. Everything was on track until a storm created a life-threatening situation at this masting event. Her mast was lost into 5,000 meters of ocean and she was forced to limp a thousand nautical miles into Cape Town for repairs that ultimately took two months and meant that the time stamp wasn't going to be the world record, but she was still the first female to do the solo circumnavigation of Antarctica. It's clearly been a bit of a bugbear because she is going back to do it all again. In mid-December 2021, she'll depart Albany in Western Australia to do the whole circumnavigation again, this time with a view to break the 102-day record. And we at Ocean Impact Organisation will be following everything closely. We've struck a bit of a partnership with Lisa. We love what she does. Her vessel is called Climate Action Now. She's embarking on a huge range of citizen science data collection whilst on this voyage because where she's going, there is very limited knowledge and understanding. And this woman is just someone who we all deserve to be supporting in her crusade, in her mission. You actually can support her. It's really important to point this out. We talk about it in the conversation, but she's not yet fully funded the expedition. So if you're a small business or you've got the capacity, you can actually help to sponsor a degree of the expedition. She's going to be doing shout outs along the whole way. She's an ambassador for Canva. So they'll be using all their great communications and digital design tools to bring awareness to her spectacular efforts and we'll certainly be doing so too. I was on the edge of my seat for this conversation and I suspect you might be too. So I hope as always you enjoy this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. So very excited to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today via Instagram Live, Lisa Blair. Lisa Blair sails the world and saves the world at the same time. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yes, we, we had a few technical glitches, but we're over those now and we're ready to have a really great conversation. Oh, I really wanted to, um, I've been so excited about having this conversation. We've only really reconnected um, after quite a few years recently as you're on the cusp of this monumental adventure back down to Antarctica, Antarctica 2.0. So I wanted to start with, you know, what's a day in the life 
for you at the moment? I can imagine there is a million and one <laughs> things going on every single day as you prepare for this next expedition. Yeah, it's um, it's been a crazy couple of months, I'll tell you that. Um, so I actually have the boat up here at Rivergate in Brisbane um, at the marina and I've been on the hard sand for the last three months, um, basically preparing to sail solo around Antarctica. So, um, you know, since I've had the boat, I've sailed about 30,000 nautical miles on her. She's done some hard, hard miles, um, taken damage through the dismasting and everything that's occurred. So to go back to the Southern Ocean where I'm going to be completely on my own, I just need to make sure the boat's as good as she possibly can be. Um, so this re refit's just been intense. Um, three months just prepping absolutely everything you can think of, trying to make sure she's as safe as possible. So I'm up and out the door first thing in the morning at the boat all day, coming home late and then having to catch up on all the computer work. So yeah, it's just been a, a bit of a rolling madhouse around here um, with a jobs list that's about 10 pages long and the time allowance for one page of jobs list to be done. So <laughs> trying to find the time. <laughs> well, every minute is precious. And so we really value your time and we value all your efforts. <laughs> the, the name of the boat is Climate Action Now. You're such a great leader and role model and advocate for a better future. I wanted to ask one quick question though. This prep work... How does that compare to being out on the ocean? Do you hate one, love the other, or are they both, you know, both interesting in their different ways? What is this prep work like for you? Is it a chore or do you get some great enjoyment out of it? I definitely, well, uh, it's a little bit of a chore depending on the job that you're doing. Um, but I learn so much about the boat. I learn new skills every time I go into a refit. Um, you know, one of my weaknesses, this project was still like electronics and understanding electronics and how they work. Um, so I've been able to gain a much better understanding of that because I already knew how to do things like, um, you know, repairing winches and, and fiberglassing and all those other kind of boat jobs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I find it intense, but it's it, and, it, and it's a big part of the achievement of the project is actually getting to the start line because I think a lot of people think that the record itself is the achievement. But for me, I always value the achievement on just leaving for the record. You've already achieved what most people wouldn't have been able to do. Um, so for me, like this preparation, this refit is like just one of the biggest hurdles out of the whole project that you kind of have to go through. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I surround myself with really great people and, and I keep a really positive attitude through it all. So I'm, I'm able to find joy even when I'm, you know, on my back in this tiny little locker in the middle of the boat, coated in fiberglass dust in the heat of, in Brisbane. So, you know, we do what we've got to do. <laughs> Imagining that in a few months' time, you're going to be a million miles away from that, almost yeah. literally. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that timeline. Where is the timeline from here? We're obviously almost mid, uh, just over midway through October 2021. So what's the process from here? Yeah, so it's even more crazy at the moment because this Saturday we have the official world record launch event. Um, so we're, we've got an open boat day here in Brisbane. So if any of your viewers are Brisbane-based, it's a free public event come on down. You can find the link on my social channels for that. Um, we've got a barbecue, some beer and wine. The boat will be open to the public. They can jump aboard, take a tour, um, get amongst it. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's happening um, this Saturday. And then two weeks after that, I'm trying to leave Brisbane. And then I have a three-week sail around over to Albany and Western Australia 
where the official record starts from. And I need to get over to Western Australia early enough so that I can do any quarantine procedures that may or may not be necessary at the time. Um, and I have enough time to recover from the three weeks sailing across to WA solo because you still, you know, I'm coastal that whole passage. So I'm not getting a huge amount of sleep for that duration of that delivery um, over. And then, um, yeah, the intention is to leave sort of at the moment we're aiming for the 19th of December as a, as a planned departure date, but that could change due to, um, you know, weather situations and also if there's anything that kind of holds my timeline up here, um, then I'll need to push it back at the other end. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bit nuts at the moment. That is wild. And the plan <laughs> obviously is in less than 102 days later, you come back into Australian, Australia's coastline. Where are you hoping to, to re-enter back into Australia? So um, the record was established in 2008 by a guy called Fedor Konyakov. He's this Russian sailor. Um, I actually got to meet him when he finished rowing a rowboat from Chile to Australia in 2014. And he was 64 at the time when he was doing that. So he's just like this most incredible adventure. He's done this lifetime of adventure. And when he established the record in 2008, he uh, did it as part of this race called the Antarctica Cup Ocean Race, and he did it on their official racetrack, which basically means you um, start and finish from Albany and Western Australia, and then you do the whole circumnavigation between 45 and 60 south in the Southern Ocean. So once you enter that racetrack, you can't go north of 45 and you can't go south of 60. So you're in those kind of um, longitudes or latitudes the entire time around. Um, so for me to be able to challenge his record, I have to start and finish from the same place and abide by the same rules, even though I'm not actually racing with the organisation. I'm, I'm sort of independently challenging the record. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, Albany it is. Albany it is. Okay, let's just dive into it. Like, why? Why, why do you do this? Like, where did it all start? <laughs> why on earth do you put yourself through these what appear to be crazy circumstances and experiences? <laughs> You know, um, quite a few times I get to see and I am going through utter hell out there and I'm thinking to myself, I, I have to be like visually remind myself that I've worked really, really hard to get to a start line, to go and put myself through hell, to go and achieve a record. Um, but, yeah, it all it was all kind of random circumstances that kind of fell into sailing. So um, I was actually studying visual arts and education at university straight out of high school um, at Lismore at Southern Cross University. And it was my last year at uni and I had just the uni holidays and I randomly got a job as the cook and the cleaner on a charter yacht in the Whit Sundays. And it was meant to just be a, a fun little time filler um, opportunity. It's kind of hospitality. I'd worked in bars and stuff before that. So it kind of the skill set I had suited and, uh, and I just fell in love with with sailing and the ocean and that, and that lifestyle and and living on a boat and and the problems and the challenges you face and overcome every day and and that concept of harnessing the wind to get from point A to point B and and only using the wind to get there and and the sort of trigonometry that's involved with planning your tacks and your dives and that that kind of concept so yeah I was I was 22 when I fell in love with sailing and I'd been on boats a bit as kid as a kid but um it wasn't until I was an adult that I really just found this passion for it and then just decided to follow that kind of pathway as far as it would take me and um 10 years later here we are 10 years so you yeah. really did 
once you kind of got it back under your skin, it really bit you hard and, and you've, you've really yeah. gone hard. So tell us a little bit about after that fact, how did you really then get into, you know, the racing side of things and obviously the solo side of things? Yeah, so I um I worked in that with Sunday job for, I don't know, like a year. And then I had this random opportunity to sail a boat from Samoa to Hawaii with some friends. And it was a friend of mine from uni and her father sailing this boat across. And I instantly said yes, packed up my life, flew to Samoa, joined this boat. And then we spent three months sailing to Hawaii. And it was just that journey of eat, sleep, sail. We had no sat phone. We didn't have any outside communication for three months, apart from the islands and the communities that we visited along the way. And and, and understanding that you know, it was my first night watch. It was my first time standing watch on a boat on on the on my own, and um, and it was the first time that I'd ever been at sea without a horizon line, being so far from land that you didn't have any land in sight. And I I just loved that idea of ocean sailing, and and so I really got sucked into that world of wanting to do more and have more adventure, and. When I came back from that trip, I was working in the mall of all places selling $2 pieces of costume jewelry and this really crap job. And I just had this incredible adventure and lived in Hawaii. And and I just remember like reflecting on my life in that moment and just sort of thinking, I don't want this. I, I want that. I want the adventure that I was having. I want to have that journey. I want to have those those moments in my life. And um, and I was reading this book uh, at the time by Sir Robin Knox Johnson, who's the first person to have sailed around the world um, solo, nonstop and unassisted in the world. Um, and he did it just over 50 years ago. And so I was reading his story and he mentioned this yacht race called the Clipper Around the World Yacht Race. And it's this amateur yacht race that he'd founded where anybody in the world and no skill sets required could sign up, pay a birth fee and race each other around the planet. And for me, I was working this crappy job and I just had this amazing adventure and I was like, it makes sense. I'm going to sign up for this race and I'm going to race around the world. I'd never done sponsorship. I'd never fundraised. I had like living paycheck to paycheck. I had was earning 20 bucks an hour, like no real way to fund the birth fee. And the birth fee was like $80,000. And, um, and yeah, and it all kind of started. That was my first sponsorship campaign. I had to figure it out and find a way. And I got to the start line and then I raced around the planet and um, and had just the most amazing adventure. And and when I came back, I was like, I want more. And and so I started the solo Trans-Tasman Yacht Race and I managed to get a boat like two weeks before this race. First time I ever sailed solo, jumped on this boat and I figured I can I have to get the boat to New Zealand by this deadline. I don't have time to test it. I'm just going to sail the boat to New Zealand and I'll figure it out on the way. And I'd never sailed solo before I even left Australia and sailed this boat to New Zealand. And um, so, yeah, I, it, I, I definitely threw myself off the cliff and, uh, and had a major steep learning curve. Um, but I also had kind of, I guess, like held my hand, so to speak, as my entry into ocean sailing by doing the clipper race because it was such a great platform to to sort of experience all the disasters and the scenarios that can occur at sea and, and witness the storms and, and do it all with a crew of 16 people. And then I would be in that situation and I'd be looking at it and go, well, how would I cope if I was on my own or what would I do or what was the situation going to be like if I was the only person on this boat? And, and so I kind of already in theory knew I could do solo sailing, but 
you know, I didn't know if I'd love it or hate it or if I could overcome those challenges or any of that. So yeah, I, and and then I went on to Antarctica 1.0 and, and Australia and here we are at Antarctica 2.0. <laughs> that really is incredible. And you know, there's a little bit of uh, similarity in the sense that, you know, I've only really done one major sailing adventure in my life and I too had to fundraise to go on that one. That was to go from Oahu to Vancouver and yeah. study the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and, and we were out there for three weeks, but I had to raise twenty thousand dollars as well. And so, yeah, you know, I, I knew the, I, I just knew, like, sounds like with you as well. Like, you just you had to be on that boat. I remember at the time, yeah. I read it, I'm like, I don't, nothing else matters in life. I have to be there. I've got to do this. And for me, yeah. it was also the gateway to to my environmental activism. I didn't continue with my sailing, but you most certainly did. Yeah, it's also. Um... For me, I think like, and, and people in your audience will probably get a bit of value out of this, but um, like you'll never get there if you don't just make that leap and commit. Like for you, if you said, oh, I'll wait till I earn enough money to go and join that boat, to go and sail and do this research in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, like it probably wouldn't have happened because life gets in the way and we, we have all these situations occur. Whereas if you made the call and you committed and you were able to, to make it happen. Um, and I think that was a big thing for me with the Clipper race was I'd locked myself into a contract. Like I had no choice. By the time I signed that contract, I was locked in. I either raise $80,000 and race around the world and have the most amazing adventure, or I don't raise the money. I still have to pay the money because I've committed to that contract and I don't get to race around the world. So it was this intense situation where I just had to find a way to make it work. And it really gave me a lot of skills that I've been able to carry through the rest of my projects um, in in that mindset of like, no, this is the goal that I'm going for and I'll figure it out. Like the, there's options. There's always an option to sort a solution out. And, um, yeah, so here we are. <laughs> Sounds good. Great advice there. So you gave a little bit of a glimpse there on talking about that trip from Samoa to Hawaii and just that feeling of the, the open horizon and sailing at night like just take the listener a little bit more into how magical those experiences can be on the ocean but then maybe also share a little bit about just how intimidating and terrifying it can be to be out there on your own in the open sea yeah it's um i think for me like i my first watch or was in like the first week at sea on that delivery I had this one magical night and, and you're sailing day and night. You take watches. So some people are sleeping while other people are, are sailing the boat. And quite often on a small crew boat, we only had four of us on board. Um, three people would be off watch and one person would be on watch. And I remember doing a night shift. It was like midnight to four to 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever time period it was. And I was up on deck and I was sitting on top of the coach house and I was just kind of looking at the world around me and it was the most perfect conditions it was like 10 to 15 knots of wind almost flat seas the boat was just coasting along you could hear the boat was happy with where it wanted to be and the sky was clear so there was just millions of stars above you and it was so calm that you could see them reflected on the water and and then a whale came near the boat and I couldn't see the whale it was too dark but I could hear it breathing as it kind of 
coasted with us and you just hear it exhale every now and then. And I, I just remember that moment of, of just sheer joy, but also just incredible peacefulness because I think in today's society, we're all so busy and we're all so connected and we all have a phone or nowadays you have like a watch that gives you notices. Like you can't sign off and just stop and breathe and enjoy that moment in time. Um, and I think that's what sailing gives me is that moment that you get and you get multiples of them. You get to sit on deck and watch the most amazing sunset occur and you have a pot of dolphins arrive and it's this moment of excitement because there's something else out here with you and you haven't seen, um, you know, a mammal of, of any kind for weeks and, and so it gives you that real excitement and joy. Um, and then you get that anticipation ahead of a storm where you're not quite sure you've got you've got the forecast and you kind of know your boat's capable. You've got to trust your boat and you've got to trust your own ability. And I think for anyone who's new to sailing, they would need to have that trust in their skipper um, on the boat that they're going out on to be able to remove that sense of fear. But you still have that anticipation. And until you go through your your first big storm and you really put the boat through its paces or or your skipper through their paces, you, you can't get that trust that you need to really be able to enjoy those moments. So there's that that nervousness, like kind of I chew all my nails at sea, like drastically. Um, and and you you kind of got that anticipation and you're you're watching the forecast and you're watching the barometer pressure drop and you you see the new swelling arrive and and the waves go from like three meters to six meters ahead of the storm front that's coming through. You see the 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 pressure change and the skies change and the cloud patterns change and then the winds start to build and you and you you're going into the system and and you're like this tiny little boat you're 15 meters long in this great big ocean you're you're nothing to this storm um and then as the storm develops you get the boat prepared and you're you're working more at making sure the boat's safe and your crew are safe if you have people with you and then you're in it and you're watching this amazing ferocious storm that's just if you were on land, would be tearing trees down around you, but you're on this boat and you're riding through it. And and for me, sometimes I've been in storm situations where the waves have been the height of like a five meter, uh, sorry, a five story building. So so you're not looking across the horizon; you're looking up at the wave because it's up at the height of your mast or close to the height of your mast. And and you watch it come, and you think there's no way that the boat can go over that wave. There's absolutely no way. And then the boat just somehow she goes up and over and and you then see the next wave and go nope that one's bigger <laughs> and you're not sure if you'll get over the next wave and so it's it's that balance between it being incredibly exciting terrifying but also just so magical a moment because you're witnessing something that most people would never get to see and you're surviving in this really raw punishable environment um in this tiny little boat and it, and it really I guess like one thing for me, and I, I did another interview just recently and we were talking about this and it was, um, it makes you feel like like this tiny little dot, like you're the ant on the planet. Um, but it also gives me, me specifically, a massive healthy respect for Mother Nature and the power and Mother Nature becomes an entity to you because your whole survival relies on her moods and and her how she feels that day whether she's going to be stormy or, or calm or you know um and I, I think that that's a magical kind of relationship to have with the sea and with with the earth and and it definitely lends itself towards all the stuff I do with the 
with the Climate Action Now messaging and the, the like environmental science and everything that I've run through my projects. So it reminds yeah. me a little bit, you know, they talk about um, astronauts and having this thing called the overview effect where they get <laughs> yeah. that chance to look at the pale blue marble of our planet in the blackness of space and they mm. are forever changed. And it sounds to me like the experience of being so vulnerable in that that womb of the ocean is a similar experience. You, you forever yeah. change as a result of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Um, like I know even now after doing a few big projects and, and setting a couple of records, I still grow so much as a person through every project. I learn something new about myself every time or I learn something new about my environment or my relationship with the ocean or um, my relationship with my boat, even though it's an inanimate object, you still like... I always call the boat, we, we're doing this, we're doing that because it becomes a part of the team. It's It's got its own character. It's got its own flaws as well. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that, that that kind of overview effect occurs to some degree. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go to space and compare it, you know, maybe next time. <laughs> well, you know, space tourism is becoming a thing, but you might need to set your fundraising high, uh, sites even higher than your Yeah, goals. yeah, and the carbon <laughs> offset. <laughs> This is true. Okay, so let's <laughs> talk a little bit about um, Antarctica then. So, you know, there mm -hmm. was the original uh, Antarctica 1.0 in 2017, um, and you can maybe tell us a little bit about that, the reasons for it, um, and how the expedition um, uh, culminated, and then obviously this decision to, to, go, to go back again and, and what's different this time with uh, the various projects of citizen science and collaborations that you're doing. Give us the, give us the spiel. All right, cool. Well, how much time we got? Um, so, uh, yeah, so I basically came off the Trans-Tasman Yacht Race, which is solo to New Zealand, um, from New Zealand to Australia. It was my first solo yacht race, and I was trying to get the boat and the funding and everything together for that race. And I came across this guy who had a 40-foot sailboat that was an ocean racing boat for sale. And I was madly trying to convince this complete stranger to lend me his boat and I would pay a charter fee to race it across to New Zealand and back. And he was just like, nah, it's not going to happen. Um, but maybe if you combine it with another project, you would be able to actually get enough money to buy the boat and then you could use it for the other project. And, you know, the boat's perfect. I've looked at this Antarctica record. Um, I was going to do it, but my wife's, you know, we're having kids now and I don't want to go and that's why we're selling the boat and yada, yada, yada. And so when he first suggested Antarctica, he told me about Fedor Konyakov and this record. I immediately was like, nah, no way. I've only sailed to New Zealand and back solo and I've been in the Southern Ocean with the Clipper race and I, I've seen those storms and I don't want to be there on my own. It's, it's impossible. It's too dangerous and it would be a suicidal kind of trip. And I had this kind of real, like, I'm not capable moment. Um, and then I went back to my job and I was um, skippering boats in the Whit Sundays at the time. And I was just going through my normal routines. And when I get those moments and I would watch the sunset, I started kind of pondering this project and going, hmm, I wonder if it is possible. Like, kind of what, what sort of boat would you need? And, and how cold would it be? And where's the iceberg line? Like, what? what's the process? Um, and so I started doing some research and, and I eventually decided after about three months of researching the historical weather data and um, talking to my family and, and sort of 
going over it all, I, I decided that, yeah, I think it is possible and I'm, I'm going to have a crack. And so I kind of combined the projects, didn't get any money for it, like raised for the Trans-Tasman Yacht Race, but, and I never bought that guy's boat, um, but, the, but the idea was there and so on. And, um, and I ended up uh, finishing that race and then moving to Sydney because I thought I would have a better opportunity for, you know, corporate sponsorship and being able to be there on site in Sydney to have meetings and things like that. I might be able to, like, find that sponsorship. And uh, so I moved to Sydney. I slept at this lovely lady, Margie's house, and I was housekeeping for her while I was trying to find a job in exchange for free rent and, and just trying to make it work. And I ended up working five different jobs across Sydney while I pulled that project together. Uh, and um, it took me three years, three and a half years um, to get to the start line of Antarctica the first time. And I, I once I committed to it, I was just so focused on making it happen. And I, I had spent years visualizing how those storms and visualizing the, the disaster scenarios that might occur and how would I react to them and, and just really trying to like put myself in my shoes when I'm on the record so I could see how I would cope. And, and I didn't know things like, you know, being isolated on my own for that length of time for three to four months, would I cope? Would I go mentally insane? Like what's, how would I manage that situation? And, and so I'd go through all these scenarios and and anyway, I, I left on the, the 22nd of January, um, 2017, and I went straight south to 45 South to cross onto the official racetrack. And then I circumnavigated between 40 to 60 South. It took me 50 days to round Cape Horn. Um, and then I had to pass past an area called Iceberg Alley, where there's an intense amount of icebergs between, just off kind of the Antarctic Peninsula there. And, um, and then I sailed across the South Atlantic Ocean and I was sort of starting to think that it was gonna it was gonna happen I was gonna set this world record I was one day ahead of the men's record it was all a go and um unfortunately on day 72 the the mast snapped in a storm and uh came crashing down and created an intense survival scenario in the southern ocean and I was a thousand nautical miles from land and sort of six to eight metre waves and um, the winds were getting up to sort of 45, 50 knots of wind that night. And uh, that was a very defining moment in my sailing career because, you know, something that I'd worked for years on just came crashing down and, and sort of stopped instantly in a blink of an eye. But then I was also having to process scenarios where I was really faced with my morality. And there were there were multiple times through that night where I very nearly didn't tell like make it to tell the story and um and so the the end result was that I had to divert the boat to Cape Town in South Africa and um and run repairs over there and I had lost the mast in the southern ocean so I can give you the Latin long positions if you ever want to go and find it but it's in about five kilometer deep water um and uh, I ended up picking up a secondhand mast in South Africa for like 5,000 Australian. We called every yacht club in Africa trying to find someone that might have a mast that I could buy secondhand that I may be able to afford to be able to get it back in the boat and get the boat going again. And um, about two months after I arrived in Cape Town, I was able to restart the record. Um, but th at this point, it was winter now in the Southern Ocean. So um, I guess like to put that in perspective for people listening, 
in summer in the Southern Ocean on a forecast, your average swell is forecasted at its peak in the centre of the storm to be about eight metres with the winds to be around 60, 50 to 60 knots of wind. Um, whereas in winter in the Southern Ocean, the swell was forecasted to be 15 metres on average in the centre of the storms and your winds were getting up to sort of 80 knots of wind. Um, and there's this really unique thing that happens in the Southern Ocean because the air's colder, it's more dense, so it applies more pressure to your sails so an equivalent, I guess, um, feeling of the wind pressure would be um, 50 knots of wind locally in Sydney uh, would be about 30 knots of wind in the Southern Ocean to kind of give people a bit of a gauge on that. And 50 knots of wind would be around 80 kilometre hour winds to, to give people a, a bit of a conversion there. So you're, you're talking like extreme temperatures, extreme winds, extreme swell, um, most people thought I was suicidal when I left for that part of the record. Um, I very nearly questioned, like quit and, and turned around and went back to Cape Town multiple times. And eventually I was able to overcome all of those challenges and, and sail back into Albany in Western Australia and set the record as the first woman to do it with one stop. Um, so that was a, a pretty amazing moment in time. But I definitely always was thinking about going back the minute that mask snapped and the minute it became a project that happened with one stop I was already planning one day to go back and do it with no stops and to break that speed record and to to achieve the original project that I was aiming to do and um but I I'd had such a kind of traumatic experience that I felt like I needed time to to heal and and process and get my trust back in the boat again and um you know, if you don't have that trust, as we kind of spoke about earlier, your relationship in those storms change and, and you question everything and, you, and you, you're, you're fearful and you're terrified in these storms rather than feeling calm and, and sort of um, might be nervous still, but, but you're trusting that the boat can get you through. So I decided that I would do the Australia record, um, which was coastal and even though it seems like it's an easier record because land's kind of like right there, um, as a solo sailor, it's actually much harder to do than Antarctica aside from the dismasting. And, uh, and that's because you're close to land the entire time. So you're not sleeping more than 20 minutes in a single sleep for 58 days straight. If you sleep through your alarm once, you could be sailing into a ship, onto a reef, onto a beach, like there was one moment where I did sleep through my alarm once and I woke up to this just insane feeling of dread. And when I ran up on deck, there was like a cliff face like right in front of me and I was sailing right towards it. Um, so, yeah, so I did that project and here we are. And I am, I feel like I've healed enough and I feel like I, I, I need to sort of, I guess, reapproach this story again and, and have that journey on the Southern Ocean and, and challenge this Antarctica record. So I'm leaving mid-December to set off and, I, and the goal is to do it nonstop and to break Fedor Konyakov's record and then also to utilise all this media coverage and, and the fact that the boat's in such a remote location to, to generate science, um, to collect information for the scientific community and then to elevate that conversation through through those media channels. So, um, yeah, it's shaping up to be a really exciting project and I can't wait to go. 
Lisa, I'm just like <laughs> I'm captivated. I'm, I'm lost for words as I sit here, and you know, we were obviously um, introduced in this in this second iteration um, of our connection, you know, via Canva and the team. And there's a real onus and emphasis on this expedition to communicate your stories and your experiences to the world to as many people. And I'm just sitting here, just going like, yes, like we need to just get the communication <laughs> channels out there so people can you know, hear from you, can learn from you. Um, you have written a book. I mean, what are some of the, the, um, the I guess, the, where would you send people who, who, who listen to this podcast and go, oh, my gosh, I need more. I've got to understand more about this incredible woman. Like, where would you send people? Is the book? Is it your YouTube channel? Your social channels? I would definitely say just my website. And on the website is the book, the blogs, like everything's there. Um, when I'm out sea on record, I have a live tracker and I blog daily. So you can actually follow the whole journey with me. Um, so yeah, that, that is a great way to get involved. Uh, there's a lot in the book that never made it into the blog. So even people who have read the blogs, um, get a lot of value or get a better understanding as to who I am and, and what I've gone through in these journeys by reading the book, um, which is aptly named Facing Fear because uh, of that restarting moment and having to overcome that that fear of the dismasting and, and that scenario that occurred there and and, and go onwards from that. So, um, yeah, definitely. And, and for me, having, like, partners involved with this project, like, we've partnered up for the project and then also, like you said, we've got, like, Canva, Loris Projects, Red Sky, they're all amazing brands that are fostering the information share and helping me communicate this climate action now and the poster note campaign and the science that we're generating and, and really helping me to elevate the the reach and the and the potential of the project, which in turn hopefully has a has a bigger effect on our communities. So um yes, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And the one thing you you didn't mention there, Lisa, was the um, the opportunity to actually sponsor a degree of of the yes. expedition as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the three hundred and sixty degree sponsorship opportunity and how people listening to this can actually um, you know invest in your incredible work, your incredible mission, the the message of climate action now? Yeah, awesome. So. Um... Basically, I am still trying to raise the last of the funds to meet the project requirements. Um, so we've come up with this amazing concept where people can sponsor an actual degree of the record. And then when I sail past your degree, I'm going to do shout outs through the blog, social media. Um, and it is, it's a way for people who are maybe small business owners or individuals or sports teams um, to, to collectively like back the project in a more unique kind of one-on-one -on -one way. Um, so you get, you know, all sorts of things. We'll send you a book, a certificate, um, your logo up on the website, um, activations around socials when I'm sailing across your allocated degree. Um, and it's $1,200 and it's all tax deductible through my partnership with the Clean Ocean Foundation. And 100% of those funds goes towards helping deliver this content, get the boat ready, making sure we can fund the science aspect. Um, and then after the record, uh, one thing that's really close to my heart is being able to inspire the next generation um, and, and being able to educate and open their minds to 
you know, different attitudes that they can have in their journeys in life to create whatever impact that they're wanting to do to deliver on. Um, so what we're rolling out is six months of school speaking um, for free across Australia and online um, around the world and trying to reach as many young minds as possible and combine this kind of adventure narrative with this actual science um, which is like microplastic sampling and ocean health data research um, and, and then leave these kids with actions that they can do in their households and their communities to impact our environment in a more positive way. So, um, yeah, super excited about that. And if you want to get involved, uh, you can just go to my website, Lisa Blair Sales the World, and uh, you'll see 360 Degree up as one of the tabs there and um, sign on up and join the team. Yeah, do it, people. Um, you've just got to... Uh, you know experience and support you know vicariously your expedition (laughs) but you know being able to back the expedition and the outcomes like you mentioned the science and the education that are going to come from it um you know we're definitely keen at ocean impact organization to do our best to shout it from the rooftops and let the world know about what you're doing and i will be following so intently um, (laughs) in the lead up and obviously once you once you depart so We've had a great chat. We're probably getting up to that sort of 40-odd minute mark now. So just looking down at my notes there, was there some things that you really wanted to talk about today, Lisa, that we haven't got to yet? Uh, it'd be cool to maybe let people know a little bit more about the science that's going to be taking place um, on this next record because I think that's really interesting to see how individual yachts can actually make themselves available for this kind of science and, and have a really positive impact um, so if you've got Let's time, I'd love to chat about that. Awesome. Let's do it. Citizen science. We are in the age of citizen science and there's know, hundreds of thousands of yachts and boats circling around our planet and they're each a avenue for data and we need data to make the kind of decisions to protect planet ocean. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about the collaborations in the citizen science that you're going to be doing on this Antarctica 2.0 mission. Awesome. Um, Yeah, so we basically, well, I saw what happened with the Volvo Ocean Race, how they had this research unit on board the boat. And my first Antarctica record, I had been calling different research groups like CSIRO and a number of different like kind of organizations. And I was really trying to get something in place from a science point um, because most of our science there's there's like a big gap in the Southern Ocean. So from a meteorology point of view, from a microplastic point of view, from an understanding of like carbon capture in the oceans, um, there's data off the main continents and where the major shipping lanes are, there's data off Antarctica, but there's almost nothing in that belt between the two. And I was very conscious of the fact that that, that is an under-documented like, area or an under-documented area. And so I wanted to make the project as available as possible to the scientific community, but I wanted to make sure that the project actually had value to the the research. And it wasn't just me saying I'm doing amazing research and then having it get loaded onto a site and never be used by anybody. Um, So I wanted to make sure that the equipment going on board the boat and and the way we're sharing the data as a free share service um, was going to reach the scientists that can then use it in their global weather modelling or their global modelling, you know, of ocean health and and microplastics and all of those sort of avenues. Um, So I'm renting a subsea research unit. It's called an ocean pack. And it's this unit that's about like almost a metre long and like half a metre high that I'll be fitting into the boat. 
And this unit takes um, sort of general ocean health readings. So it takes like acidity, salinity, um, dissolved carbon dioxide, chlorophyll, PCO2. Um, so it's all these kind of metered measurements that our scientific community can use to help map our impact on our planet. Um, and how our ocean is recovering or not based on the, that kind of global view. So it's, it's a complete data set as well, which is super interesting because I'm doing, well, planned full 360 uh, around Antarctica. So uh, the intention is to get a full complete view. Um, and, and so then, yeah, so that's amazing. And we're partnered with IMOS um, and AIMS, which is the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And a second kind of subcategory of that unit is a microplastic sampler. So this sampler allows us to take a water sample the entire way around and it runs through a filter and there's a 100 micron filter, which does really fine, almost like can't see it samples. And then there's a 500 micron filter, which is like your small little specks of plastic that are in our ecosystems. Um, so that'll be running throughout the entire circumnavigation and allowing me to get a pretty clear view of the different areas. And we may find areas of no plastic, but we're definitely going to find areas with plastic. Um, so that'll be a really valuable sense, uh, like kind of data set because as a scientific community, we're only just starting to understand the ramifications of microplastic and microfibers and, and sort of how that's impacting our ecosystems. It's going into our food sources. It's going through the fish chain, into your dinner plate, and, and how is that getting into our waterways? Um, so this sort of data set will be able to help that. Um, I'm also deploying some drifter boys for the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, again, with our weather stations, we don't really have a lot in that belt around the Southern Ocean. They're north or south of those latitudes. Um, so we're, I'm, I'm committed to deploying eight drifter boys, and we're going to see when we load the boat up if we can fit more on the boat. Um, and we're also trying to set the boat up as a mobile weather station. So as I sail around, uh, we'll be able to have a live kind of feed off the boat as another kind of weather station in the middle of the Southern Ocean. So that'll help the um, Bureau of Meteorology with their weather forecasting and NOAA and those sort of organisations through the World Meteorology Organisation. Um, but it'll also help me get a cleaner and a better sort of forecast on the boat. And it sort of helps me stay safer as well when I'm out there. So, um, yeah, so that's super exciting. Um, what else are we doing? We're also data logging my depth sounder for the seabed 2030 program which is a a way of mapping the seafloor and they, they're getting data sets it's a citizen science driven program uh, it's all volunteer run and they're by 2030 creating a atlas of the ocean floor so they're getting data sets from all boats um, private cruising boats big commercial boats all around the world to help map out all of the seafloor so we can get a greater understanding of what's actually under there rather than a bit of an estimate, which is what we have now. Um, and uh, I'm also looking at participating in a sleep research program um, for chronic fatigue at sea and, and working out, um, you know, how we can monitor that and, and where that data set can be useful. So, yeah, lots going on. It seems um, so generous of you to be, obviously this is your passion and finding ways to, bring this critical information to the agencies that require it, but you're also on a record run as well. So at what point did you have to start sort of weighing up what you could take on board um, in terms of both gear and your time and effort versus still making sure you're fixed up on the record attempts? 
Yeah, it's um, it's something I don't feel is worth compromising. So um, the science is so invaluable to that community. Like when I've started making inquiries about that, the level of excitement coming from those organisations has just been so amazing to see and for them to have a someone who's willing to put their hand up and say, yep, I'll make myself freely available and as much science equipment as we can fit, I will take and as much as my boat system can handle, I'll take. Um, the, but it's mostly a hands-off system. So it's really, I change microplastic filters twice a day. I monitor the pump to make sure there's no blockages or any kind of faults or, or situations occurring with that. Um, and for the sleep research, I just wear like a Fitbit kind of, or like, you know, a, a sleep monitor kind of device. And um, I do a speed reaction tw test twice a day, which is just basically this five minute computer test to just determine if my fatigue levels are impacting my reaction time and my decision-making skills. So, um, yeah, and the rest of it's fairly hands-off. It's, it's quite a lot of work in the pre and the post with loading the data up and exporting it and, and getting that side of things together. Um, but during the actual record, it's not hugely affected. And um, I'm just so aware of how unique a location it is that, and it's so aligned with what I'm trying to achieve with the Climate Action Now and the Post-it Note campaign. And um, and I really wanted to elevate the programs that I've been delivering from an awareness campaign to an actual functional measured result campaign. How can I measure the impact that I'm creating through these sailing trips? And for me, I sail so that I can elevate that impact, not necessarily, I mean, I sail also because I love it and I love these adventures, but I, I'm very aware that I have this platform that allows me to amplify that message um, and I want to utilise it as much as possible in that, in that way. So um, the science is just another branch of that, um, which is, yeah, pretty, pretty exciting. Oh, this is, I've just doubled down my my love and admiration for you today Lisa. like <laughs> i want to see this blown away and i can't wait to to share the story across ocean impact org throughout the entire adventure and beyond so you know on behalf Thank of you. planet ocean and our community and you know all species all citizens of this planet we just really thank you so much for all that you're doing yeah thank you so much and anyone who does want to get involved who maybe can't do a um, a degree but just wants to have some form of impact you can go to the website and go to the climate action now tab and click on get involved and I don't know if you'll see a photo of the boat but if you google a photo of the boat it's covered in thousands and thousands of post-it note messages and each post-it note is an environmental action from someone in the public um, so please jump on fill out an action um, it's something you're already doing and then we've wrapped the entire hull of the boat in thousands of actions. And it's a way of inspiring people who maybe want to make a change, but aren't quite sure where to start. It's a way of sort of showcasing those amazing actions and, and showing people that as individuals, we have the power to create change. So definitely fill out a post-it note at lisablairsalestheworld.com as well. It's a captivating boat and a fantastic message. And uh, yeah, You won't miss again. me in the dark, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, check it out, guys. Go and uh, do a quick Google search and follow Lisa's journey. And, yeah, we just wish you the absolute uh, best of luck. We can't wait to follow the journey. And you just, you rock, Lisa. You really do. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And um, talk to you soon, Lisa. Thanks, everybody.